For thousands of years, people have wondered what happens to the soul after death. And our materialistic culture rejects the existence of an afterlife, but millions of people have undergone what have come to be called NDEs, or near-death experiences, and they've come back from the other side with incredible stories to tell. Our guest today is one of them, Heidi Barr, a Jewish girl who had nothing to do with Christianity, but who died and met Jesus. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Howdy, Jacob. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Damien. How are you? I'm excited, actually, about this because how familiar are you with NDEs, um, near-death experiences? I've never had one myself, <laughs> but uh, no, I, 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 I haven't really heard too much about them. I, they're sort of on my radar, like I know they exist, but uh, yeah. never really got into researching them. Well, we came across Heidi Barr um, because... She is uh, Jewish, and she, as we said in this introduction, met Jesus, and she recently wrote an article for Messiah Magazine in issue 27, a really good article called What Happened When I Died. So I am very excited uh, because we've, Jacob and I have spent some time digging into both NDEs and Heidi's story, and she's got quite the story to tell, right, Jake? Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this. It's it's uh, the intersection of of Jesus and Judaism plays out in so many different ways, but it's rare that you see it like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into it. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus. Don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. Heidi Barr is here. Uh, Welcome to Messiah Podcast. Heidi, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, so we've we've been kind of a, a fan of yours. We've read your book. We've uh, we've seen we've seen you around, and um, you wrote an article for Messiah Magazine about a pretty intense experience. I'm going to set the stage for our listeners here. Okay. You were 16 years old. You're riding uh, this four-year-old mare, Heather. Mm-hmm. You're having a great time on mm-hmm. top of the world, in full control of the situation. But unbeknownst to you, nearby, some other guy has bit off a lot more horse than he can chew. He's riding this Arabian, loses control, and all of a sudden, horse and rider are just barreling towards you. Your horse starts freaking out. Mm-hmm. And what happens next? She, we were, we had nowhere to go. We were at the end of a trail. There was nowhere to go but fall. She reared up. The first time she reared up, I dropped the reins, grabbed her neck. She came back down. Second time she reared up, she stepped with her back feet 
off the edge of the trail and it was a, a slope. So she flipped backwards over the trail with me on her back and fell across my body, breaking my pelvis, breaking my back, crushing my chest. Of course, I didn't know all that at the time. And uh, as soon as I saw her back hurtling toward me, I knew I was going to die. And the minute she hit my chest, every cell in my body stood stock still and my soul left from every cell in my body. That's where it really gets started right there. So I know Mm -hmm. you've, you have, God has, has given you the opportunity to share this a lot uh, of late because Mm -hmm. I, 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 interestingly, I heard you say, you know, I, I didn't say a lot about this for decades, I think was the word that you used. Took me decades to know why God spared me. Why is this happening now? What's up? I felt like, well, there were a few reasons. First of all, I am Jewish and I never felt completely at home in a church, although I do have a church home now. But Mm -hmm. I also feel totally at home in an Orthodox synagogue. So I'm a member of the Chabad synagogue here. I felt as if um, I needed to raise my kids have work my job mm-hmm. and have the time to be open and free about what I had experienced. I did write a version of this story in my hospice book, but that was a lot of what I said was edited out because yeah. the hospice book, um, my editor didn't want it to be preaching to the choir. She wanted it to be discussing death and hospice for everyone. So they edited a lot of my story out of the book and that was fine. Mm-hmm. I was okay with that. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I finally had the time to speak about what had happened. And I actually felt God urging me. It was the strangest thing. I kept feeling like I wanted to open my mouth. A lot of times I didn't want to open my mouth, especially when it comes to my family members, because most of my family, although a few are Orthodox, most of my family members are atheists. Mm -hmm. And to this day, my mother will discuss it now. She has dementia, but she actually will discuss this with me now. My father, who at this moment is on hospice and dying, still will not discuss my experience. He is terrified of death, and he doesn't want to hear about it. And it was basically, I was forbidden to talk about it. So Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, out of respect for my family, I kept quiet. Understood. But I decided now was the time. I'm not raising kids anymore. I have a couple of grandkids. I'm not, I'm retired from my job as a hospice nurse. Mm-hmm. I have the time to do this. I have the time to, to pass this along. And it's, I don't want to beat anybody over the head with it. I'm not preaching to anybody. That's not my role. I mm-hmm. just want to provide people with hope. We, we are sorely lacking hope in this world today. And That's I would true. like to provide some hope if I can. So I guess that's it. I don't know. God just told me to do it, which is weird, but he told me to do well, it. Well, it's nice weird. when God tells you to do something and then <laughs> yeah. totally confirms it by putting you on 150 different podcasts. Yeah, I know. It's so <laughs> strange. It, it just yeah, all happened incredible. at once. Yeah. Well, so your soul your soul left every cell of your body. Yep. For uh, most people, that happens to um, never do a podcast again, but something different happened uh, in your case. What happened after after that feeling of leaving your body? I um, was found myself about 30, 40 feet up in the air. I could see everything. 
I looked at my body. I watched the horse roll over my body and I literally was tossed like, my body was tossed like a rag doll. And I kept, was thinking at that moment, I, I hope she doesn't get hurt, my horse, meeting my horse. I hope she wasn't hurt and she wasn't. Hmm. I saw my sisters down the hill. My little sister screamed and covered her her face with her hands. My middle sister was uh, actually in the car. She was allergic to horses, so she most of the time stayed in the car. And she w- had her her face like up, up against the window like this. Mm. I saw my horse run down the hill and towards the barn. I saw the other horse with the guy flopping on his back run down the hill towards the barn. And the weird thing was I could see inside the barn. The barn was facing away from me, but I could see both horses enter the barn. I could see the commotion in the barn. I saw Charlie, who was in the barn, realize I wasn't on Heather's back. And um, as I was up there, my thoughts were not about me. I didn't care about me. Whatever happened to me didn't matter. I was My body was immaterial. I didn't care. And I really was so myself. The only thought I had at that moment was I wish my sisters didn't have to see me die. That was my one regret was that they were going to have to see me die. And it was when I had that thought that I noticed this light over my right shoulder. And it was illuminating everything before me. And it was, I I knew it wasn't the sun because it was kind of partly cloudy day, but it wasn't the sun, but it was the light right here. And as I turned to look at it, it was a person and that person moved forward until he was next to me. And I, I recognized him immediately. And you have to understand, I recognized him immediately. I knew, I said, oh, hi, I know you. And I knew it was Jesus. Mm-hmm. He, I just knew who exactly who he was, which is very strange since my father is not only a flaming atheist, he is he used to say things like, Jesus Christ is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on mankind. He said that constantly. He said that almost every day. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no reward. There's no punishment. You are less significant than the most microscopic speck of dust in the universe. When you die, you're buried. There's nothing. He told us all this. He told us this constantly. This was his, a constant refrain. And uh, there I was with Jesus. <laughs> and um And I had been raised in an Orthodox community, although by the time I was 13, the community had kind of died out. And we, my parents belonged to a Reformed temple, and the rabbi was an atheist as well. So it was, you know, Jesus was kind of the last person I expected to see, but I knew him immediately. And I knew I had known him my entire life. It may sound so strange, but I knew I had known him since... As the psalm says, he formed me in my mother's womb, and I knew he had been talking to me all along. Now, I was a little different than my dad. I always believed in God. God made sense to me. No God made no sense to me. I looked at the world, and it the world to me made no sense if there was not a God. So I used to talk to God every night. Did I think I was talking to Jesus? No. Didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Jesus was nothing more in my household than a cuss word. Hmm. But and I don't mean to offend anyone. No, but, I um, the way it is. My grandpa felt the same way. About it. <laughs> hmm. So you understand. I do. Yeah, and uh, 
I saw when I saw Jesus, I realized he had been the one sitting at my bedside every single night. He was the one I had been talking to. And uh, he was all at once my, I always say this, my brother, my father, my best friend. He was all of those things at once. And I loved him with all of my heart. I, you have no idea what it's like to look into his eyes and you feel such love and acceptance that you, you actually don't want to look away from his face. But as we were there, and there was a lot of, he and I were talking and chatting, and everything that was happening below me was very peripheral. He kind of held out his hand, and this three-dimensional movie of my life played everything all at once, from the time I was conceived until this moment that I died. And I was actually a good kid. I was doing a lot of things where I was hurting myself, but I wasn't hurting other people. But there were a few things he showed me and he would stop the, t- the tape or the video from time to time. Um, there was one time when, when I was 10 years old and my father had been driving me to Hebrew school with a 13-year-old boy who lived up the street. And he, I was very tall for my age. He was very small for his age. And I turned to him and I said, why are you so shrimpy? And he didn't answer me. And I knew I shouldn't have said that. But when I died and Jesus was showing me my life, I actually felt what this young man felt. I was in his body. And when I said those words to him, I could feel his heart literally shrink. And I felt so bad. And I knew that every single thing we do, every single thing we say has an impact on others. And um I'm not just walking through life doing nothing. Every single thing I do means something. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means I am aware that I need to, I need to pay attention to the way I treat people. Hmm. So what I realized is Jesus wasn't there judging me. I was judging myself while he was there with me. I judged my own actions and he didn't, he, there was no finger pointing. There was no scolding. There was no, why are you doing that? Why are you smoking? Why are you using drugs? Why are you hanging out with these kids? He didn't say those things. He, um, it was all about how did I treat other people? It wasn't about me. It was the way I treated other people. And, you know, a lot of things had happened in my life that weren't all that great, but it also wasn't about them. Jesus wasn't the avenging angel who said, you know, don't worry, I've, I've got, I'm going to take care of those people for you. It wasn't about them. It was mm-hmm. about me. And when my life review finished, and all of this, I, I have to explain, and this is hard to explain. A lot of this stuff is hard to explain. For me, there was, and I knew this at the time, because I looked at it in two ways. Either I had all the time in the world, or there was no time. Time simply was not a factor. Jesus and I had all the time in the world and probably in total four to five minutes elapsed. The total time I was dead for me, it was an eternity. Every single yeah. second was an eternity. God's time is very different than our sense of time. Yeah. But Jesus took my hand. He was on my right. He took my hand and we flew like Superman. And I realized we were surfing on a wave of light, which was 
just so fun. He and I were laughing. We were mm. laughing. He had this grin, the most infectious grin. He's grinning from ear to ear. He's taking me surfing on this wave of light. And I looked down because we were both barefoot and I could feel it tickling my fingers. And I had my hand, one of my left hand behind me and I could feel it on my fingertips. And uh, it was just like, he, he was looking at me and saying, isn't this great? Isn't this fun? And I couldn't stop looking at his face. So we're traveling. There was no tunnel. I didn't go through a tunnel. We're going faster and faster. And I could see things as we're traveling, individual things. I was looking at his face the whole time. So I could see things, anything passing behind him, I could see. But um, don't ask me exactly what I saw. I think initially I saw trees. I may have seen buildings. and then, But we were going faster and faster. I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw stars. And there was actually something that happened later that I remembered seeing as we were traveling. But... Um, we were traveling faster and faster and faster, and it was incredibly fun. But we were traveling so fast that we reached a point where there was nothing, there were no individual things. All things became one thing, and I realized that one thing was God. Now, did that mean I disappeared into God or my personality vanished into God? No, Jesus and I were still there. But I realized that God permeated every single corner of this universe. There was no place in this universe where God was not. And as I came to that realization, we reached a threshold. I'm just going to call it a threshold, like a door. And we crossed that threshold. I recognized it as a threshold. I was crossing a threshold. And as I crossed that threshold, Jesus took me to a light. We're still holding hands. And I'm going to describe the light for you. It's very difficult to describe. But uh, because there really aren't words to express the immensity of this light, but it was a bright, white, blemishless light that took up my entire field of vision. It was infinite in its scope, but I could look at it. It was a warm light. It was alive and it was love. Mm -hmm. And this was God. This Jesus took me straight into the light, didn't hurt my eyes. It was living. And the next thing I knew, I found myself sitting on God's lap. And I'm talking about God, God. <laughs> and he was a big God. I was, if you picture a toddler sitting on her dad's lap, that's what it felt like to me. I was a toddler sitting on her, her father's lap. Mm. And I, so he, he's, a, he's a light and he's a God, a person at the same, I mean, Literally, I had my arms around him. I was on his lap, kicking my feet. I had my arms around him. I buried my face in his chest. And I have never felt so loved. I belonged there. I never wanted to leave. And, um, you know, somebody asked me if I saw his face. And no, I didn't. I, I glanced up just momentarily. And his face was shrouded in clouds or mist or something. I couldn't see it. But I didn't care. I just wanted to sit there and be with God. Hmm. And for me, the time I spent on his lap was an eternity. Now, it had probably been, who knows, a couple minutes, but it was an eternity for me. And then God kind of moved me. He, he shifted me around on his lap so that I could see something. He wanted to show me something. He didn't say anything. 
but I knew he wanted to show me something. So I lifted my head. And the only way I can describe it is to say, picture a giant, infinite being wearing a long white robe who then withdrew a portion of himself. He withdrew, he pulled back a corner of his robe. This robe is stretching out into infinity. And I can see it stretching out into infinity. But he withdrew a portion of himself to show me something. And that's something I can only describe as heaven. The first thing I saw as he was pulling back his robe was green grass. And it was, this fascinated me. This this is one of the things besides Jesus and God, this is the thing that stuck with me the most. This grass was so perfect and so green and it was alive Every blade I could see, I'm here, I, I, I am infinitely far away from this grass, but I can see every single blade of this grass. I can see every single detail of every single blade of this grass. And the grass was bathed in this light and it was singing. And I'm sitting there thinking the grass is singing and I'm marveling at this. The grass was singing the praises of God. Mm. It was singing. And I looked a little farther and I saw flowers. So picture a flower like an iris. Um, I saw, because one of the flowers I noted was this very deep purple that was kind of like an iris with deep blue-black veins. Hmm. I could see every detail of every flower. I could see carpets of flowers and I could see every petal. I could see every portion of the flower. I could see every leaf on every flower. And then I looked a little farther and there were trees and these trees are like earth trees, but they weren't exactly earth trees. And um, the only way to describe the trees is I always think of them as quaking aspens. I could see, think about laying beneath a grove of aspens and you're looking at the sunlight filtering through the leaves of the aspen and you can see every vein and every leaf. I could count. I'm infinitely far away, but I could count every leaf on every tree. And I could see the leaves moving. The leaves were moving as the grass was singing and the light filtering through everything was the light of God. And all of these plants, all of these living plants, which on earth, I think I love plants and on earth, everything is a reflection of that, but it's still just a reflection of that. And I'm looking at all of these things, marveling that they are, singing the praises of God. And I could understand them. I just don't ask me to tell you what they were singing because I can't remember anymore. I couldn't remember as soon as I woke up. But I looked even farther and I could see a pathway. Now, this pathway for me was shrouded. And I said once it was shadowy or really, it's not that it was shadowy, but it was shrouded. There was like a veil between myself and the farther I looked down the pathway, the more veiled it became but I could hear people singing and I could see people coming along this pathway, Um, but I couldn't see them. I could just see their figures coming towards me and they were singing as well. And it was at that moment that Jesus was right there by my side. And he said, you know, I'm here looking and he's right here. And he said, you didn't die. You have to go back. 
And I turned away from him. I buried my head in God's chest. And I said, no, I'm not going back. And he said, you didn't die. You have to go back. And I said, no, I'm not going back. He took my hand and he said, and he looked me right in the eye and he said, you didn't die. You have to go back. And I started yelling at him and I said, no, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. And I began screaming, I'm not going back. I'll feel pain. But he took me back. And I remember God actually pulling, removing his arms from around me and I went back. Uh, there was no, you know, surfing this time. There was no tunnel. We were right above my body. Mm. And I'm looking at this body and I'm looking at Charlie, the ranch owner, kneeling next to my body, crying and praying. And I had no idea how I was going to get in this body. But Jesus, um, he took me underneath my body. This is very strange, but he shoved me up and I was laying on my side, but he shoved me up from underneath my body. And the weirdest thing was I, I got into my body and I hit my face. Picture being shoved up into a box and hitting the inside of the box. Mm-hmm. I was shoved into my body and I hit the inside of my skull. And I panicked. I had a total panic attack, a total meltdown inside my body. I was struggling inside my body because it's the most claustrophobic feeling you can imagine. And suddenly Jesus was right there in my body with me. And he, the only way I can describe it is to say, he smoothed my arms into my arms. He smoothed my legs into my legs. He made me one person again. He put my soul back in my body. Mm. And he said, and, and it was at this point that he said, your life is in good hands, which took me a long time to figure that out because I had sort of had guilt about that. And um, I he I couldn't see him anymore, but then I was, you know, I was trapped in this body and I managed to, I, cu- I couldn't remember how to do anything. I could not remember how to do anything, but I managed to crack over, open one eye and I looked at Charlie and I croaked out his name And he said, thank God, thank God. And he (laughs) threw me over the horse, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Mm. And um, threw me over the horse, got me to my car, threw me in the backseat, drove right past the hospital, took me home, Mm. carried me up, put me in my bed. And uh, the rest is history. Now, I was very severely injured. I was in shock. My parents are a little weird in that they didn't take, they didn't call an ambulance Uh, They took me to the doctor. My mother took me to a clinic the next day where they transported me directly to the hospital. And uh, the miraculous thing is because I had no feeling from the waist down and I couldn't walk. Hmm. I I healed. This particular doctor, I did not have good care at this hospital. He didn't call in a specialist. He didn't call in a surgeon. He didn't call in therapists, nothing. He just said, lay on your back for... 21 days and don't move. That's all he said. I actually didn't, but. um, Your back was broken. Yeah. Right. Your pelvis was broken. I mean, you. Yeah. My chest was pressed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the amazing thing is I healed. I healed without any any medical intervention aside from laying flat on my back for 10 days. And when I had had an, when I had an x-ray later, the physician said, I was having some back problems and I went to to a physician and had an x-ray. And he said, 
when did you have your, your back surgically fused? Your vertebrae, I had four, four, four vertebrae in my lower back that were fused. And I said, I've never had my vertebrae surgically fused. And he said, you have four vertebrae in your lower back that are fused. And I said, I didn't, nobody did that. (laughs) I mean, God did that. I didn't do that. (laughs) There was no doctor who did that. Mm -hmm. And um, I had actually healed by the time I was released from the hospital in 21 days, I was on crutches. I was walking within six months. And, you know, the interesting thing was, I never worried about it. You might think I was, and I, I really was pretty shocking those first 24 hours. And my mother had, she had shoved a heating pad under my back when I, when I got home and I couldn't feel it. So I didn't realize I was getting a bad burn. I had a third degree burn on my back, which mm. later in the hospital turned into a bed sore, a decubitus ulcer, mm. but I couldn't feel it. So I, I mean, I I regained feeling within probably four to five days. I actually couldn't walk for a long time, but I regained full mobility. And it never occurred to me that I wouldn't. I don't Mm. know if that sounds strange, but I just never worried about it. What I was thinking about. Jesus puts you back in your body. I guess you have some level of confidence that's not, that's above average. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, I, I guess had I been paralyzed, I'm not, I think that would have been horrible, but I think Mm -hmm. I still wouldn't have worried about it. Mm -hmm. There was what I was thinking about now for the first 24 hours, I didn't talk to my parents about this. I told my little sister what had happened. She, she and I shared a bedroom, my youngest sister, and she had seen the whole thing. She believed me. Mm -hmm. My parents came to see me in the hospital um, this 48 hours after my accident. And I, all I wanted to do was, I didn't want to talk about my injuries. I wanted to tell them what had had happened. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I died. And I, I went to heaven with Jesus. I saw Jesus and he took me to heaven and I saw God. And, um, my mother said, Oh honey, we all think silly things when we have an accident you were just unconscious and i said no i died i went to heaven and i saw god jesus took me to heaven and my father said nothing he he literally walked out of the room and the next thing i knew they had called a psychiatrist to come talk to me and he just talked to me about nothing much and then they called a uh, my this rabbi from the reformed temple who was an atheist and he came to chat and he said Yes, when you're unconscious, you you imagine a lot of things. You hallucinate. And I said, no, I wasn't unconscious. I was dead. I saw yeah. Jesus, and he took me to heaven. It's just, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. There was <laughs> never any question in my mind about what happened. This mm. was the most real thing that has happened to me. I have three kids. I've got two grandkids. I have... I have a husband I love. I've known him since I was 14 and he was 16 and all of life, all of my life is real. That was real, real dying, seeing Jesus, going to heaven, seeing God, seeing that was real, real, real hard to explain. I've heard you describe it that way. Real, 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 real. Yes. I mean, it's obviously on it's, it's, um, I'm listening to you describe it and having 
a struggle to put it into words is certainly understandable. It's also hard for someone who has not imagined it, who's never done that, never been a part of that to imagine it. How frustrating is it for you when people dismiss, for instance, you know, the, the brain death process and you're well acquainted with death from your mm-hmm. hospice career, you know, having lived that, describing it as real, real, when you read science and you read the skeptics and they say, well, the brain does an endorphin release and the, the, the whatever part of the brain does a memory dump. And so your whole life review is nothing more than a physiological reaction to death. I mean, how, how, how does that feel is not a good question. I know how that feels, but what's your response to that? Um, I actually don't worry. This is, that's another one of those things I don't worry about. I, I, I have read the studies. People say mm-hmm. it's just, it's all chemical. It's a chemical right. reaction in the right, brain right. because it's a chemical reaction in the dying brain, lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I don't think so. Based yeah. upon my experience and based upon the experience of a few other people I have met. Yeah. Uh, which is really odd because I went back to a class reunion a few years ago and two people in my class reunion came to talk to me and they actually hadn't, didn't know anything about my near, near death experience. Hmm. Um, but we were chatting and both of them started to cry. And I said, why are you crying? And they told me that they, one had had a heart attack and died. One had drowned and died. And their experience was so moving. They were both crying. They couldn't stop crying about it. My experience was actually quite joyous and, mm-hmm. When I hear other people's, like, do cry. When I hear my own, I'm happy. But I don't get frustrated. I just feel like there is, I mean, if nothing else, you can look at it as why is dying and going to heaven any less real than a chemical reaction in your brain as you die? There's mm-hmm. Neither can be proven. Right, it's all unknown. Right. You can't prove the non-existence of heaven any more than you can prove the existence. So mm-hmm. I don't actually see the point. <laughs> right. It's interesting yeah. that you bring up your um, your classmates because as I was, your story inspired me to look up a little bit more about these near-death experiences. I, hadn't, I didn't really know much about them. And um, mm-hmm. the statistic that popped up on uh, when I searched how many people have had this was like 5% of everybody. And then I was like, wait, what's 5% of 300 million? So this is like <laughs> millions of people just in like United States of America have reported having these near-death experiences. Now, first of all, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Second, it's interesting how many commonalities there are. But there are mm-hmm. some, there are some, um, like some people don't have the the happy experience. Like you had an experience that you did not want to come back from. You wanted to stay there. I've read about right. some some people, what they experience, they beg to come back and like be given a second chance. Um, since you've been there and back, do you have any insight as, as to why some people would have just a drastically different or very dark sort of um, terrible experience? I've met some people who have had terrible experiences and if they come back, their lives change dramatically. Mm-hmm. My husband and I actually went to a talk given by Raymond Moody, who was sort of the father of near-death experiences. I think he coined the phrase near-death experience. And my husband asked him, have you met really evil people who died and came back and how did it change them? 
And he said he had met two people. They were both sociopaths. They were murderers. They were in prison and they had died and come back. And he said they both, he said they were both really good people. They were actually working in the prison hospice. Mm. And he asked them why. They said neither of them had grown a conscience, but they knew what was going to happen after they died. And they didn't want to pile on any more stuff. Mm. So they were so they so that they had changed this the experience had changed them even if it didn't change them and say grow them a conscience it had changed their behavior Mm. it had changed their hearts i know some people i know one woman who came back because she didn't want to leave her mother alone she was a 12 year old daughter or 12 year old child when she died and Mm. she didn't she was so upset about her mother that she begged to come back Mm. and she was allowed to come back and her body too was healed which is remarkable because she had a broken neck wow Mm. so i i I always tell people i you know people say what about hell well i didn't get the full tour yeah jesus and i'm I'm just always going to say the same thing he didn't he didn't say and over here we have the pit of fire and here no i didn't get any of that yeah i what i got was knowing that I came back knowing a lot of things, but what you, what everyone needs to realize is, is at least in my case, when I came back, when I was dead, everything made sense to me. I felt like all my questions were answered. All of my existential questions, why am I here? What is the point of life? Is there a God? It was all answered. Mm. When I came back, I remembered that those questions were answered, but I didn't necessarily remember the answers. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remembered a lot of things, but I didn't necessarily remember all those answers. And it occurred to me later, because I had to think about this. I had to process this for a while. It occurred to me later that if we had all the answers when we were here on Earth, there would be no point. Of, there would not even be a point to being here. Mm. You know, if we had those answers, what would be the point of living? So it's probably better that we don't have all the answers here. Right. But I also... Um, you know, I suffered some survival survival guilt when Jesus was talking to me about your life is in good hands. What I, my first question to myself was, well, why me? There are a lot of people out there who in who who need help. Why me? Why yeah, is my life yeah. in good hands? Why isn't everybody's life in good hands? Yeah. And then I realized what he was saying to me. It took me a few minutes to realize this, and this is coming from the Jewish perspective of having guilt about everything. Um, what I realized was what he was saying was. No matter what happens, whether really bad things happen, really good things happen, terrible things, unimaginably terrible things, no matter what happens, if you're sick, if you're well, your life is in good hands. It's still in God's hands. My life was still in God's hands, no matter what happened. But I also have a, uh, I also knew that I had a choice. I could have looked at Jesus and said, who are you? Mm-hmm. Why, why are you here? Mm-hmm. But I knew him immediately. And, and it was just this opening in my heart that this was, this was a man. And, and the really funny thing was during my life review, I'm, I'm staying, I'm up in the air with Jesus. He's by my side. I'm having a life review. And I'm seeing myself as a baby with him sitting next to me as a baby. Hmm. And so I'm looking at him and I'm looking at him in this movie that's going by and we're both laughing because it was so absurdly funny <laughs> to see, to be both for both of us to be in two places at once, yeah. which is what we were. 
So yeah, I don't worry too much. My husband's a physician and I've worked with a lot of nurses um, in a lot of different departments and I don't worry too much about whether it's just chemical changes in the brain. And I figure, you know, people do, you will find out. Everybody does find out because the two things we have in common are we get, we are born and we die. That's Mm, right. 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 We all share that as human beings. Also, you know, the, and you said you didn't want to be offensive or controversial, or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll be controversial. It's a okay. it's a messianic Jewish podcast. So, um, I know that there are a number of Christians who would be completely confounded by the fact that you hadn't said the prayer, like you know the magic prayer. You hadn't invited Jesus into your heart yeah. in a technical statement of affirmation, and yet he showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is Jesus to you after this experience as a Jewish woman growing up now attending a Chabad house, which I couldn't help, but th- a Chabad synagogue, I was listening to describe, um, God as the light. And I just keep thinking of the Ein Sof, you know, that mm-hmm. term from, from mm-hmm. mystical yes. Judaism. Yes. That's how he's described endless light endless light and you said contracted himself like this creation of the world thing when he contracted himself and showed created the world what you described is very jewish Mm -hmm. but sorry uh just random thought there um you know what is yeshua in that sense of christianity has this very clear definition of what jesus is he's the one who's saving me from burning in hell you're a Jewish woman who met him for for really no apparent reason. You hadn't said the prayer. I know from your other testimony, you were using drugs. You were a good kid, but you weren't like some, you know, holy and pure no. angelic creature that Jesus decided she's worth me meeting. What is he? What is he to you? I mean, what is what is he? He everything. Um He's my Messiah. I believe he is what he says he is. Now, was he the Messiah Jews at the time were necessarily expecting or hoping for? No, obviously not. Mm -hmm. But as my little sister said to me once, what if we were wrong? She's, she toys with, she, she knows he's obviously, she knows he's real. She obviously watched me die. She knows Mm -hmm. about my experience. She was the first person I told. And she believes me. But she said, what if we were wrong? What if he was the Messiah? I, in terms of what his role is, I like to think of his role as our advocate, which I believe is a totally Jewish concept. Right. He is our advocate before God. Mm-hmm. He wants to be everyone's advocate. It's not like he's thinking, I'm only going to pick the good people. He's <laughs> coming for the bad people. He's coming for right. the struggling people. He's there for every single one of us. And it was Jesus who took me to God. It was Jesus who I think, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't think I was necessarily supposed to survive this. I think he changed his mind. Hmm. Why? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe because of my kids or my grandkids. Um, 
And he decided, and I got this notion as I was, as he was pulling me off of God's lap, that he had decided he had a purpose for me. I did not know what that purpose was. I really wasn't sure. It took me a long time to decide to be public with this. Mm-hmm. But I kind of felt like, in a sense, it was Jews and Christians, we are, we're sisters. We come from the same root. We come from the same tree. And we have grown apart. Mm. But this is Judeo-Christianity. We're an ethical monotheism. We are still, we are God's children. And I kind of felt like I stood between two worlds, like a bridge or straddling a fence. It's, it took me, I didn't, I came back a completely different Jew. I didn't come back a Christian. I came back a completely different Jew. I came back a, a Jew who believed, who knew Jesus was the Messiah. What I was going to do with that was hard because at the time, at that time, my parents couldn't accept it. My religious community wasn't going to accept it. Right. And churches didn't necessarily have anything good to say about Jews either. We were, I I mean, I remember going to church when I was six years old to an Easter service with a friend of mine. I was seven years old. And the the uh, pastor was preaching Jews were Christ killers. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'm a Christ killer. Whatever Christ, whatever that is, I'm a Christ killer. Yeah, doesn't <laughs> I didn't, sound good. <laughs> no, I didn't feel welcome in a church either. It's right. different now. But, um, you know, a friend of mine, I did get baptized. I had I, ch- I chose to get baptized and it took me a long time. And I, I got baptized in a river. And... Um, a friend I knew said, how does your family feel about you being a born-again Christian? And I stopped and looked at him and I thought, wait a minute. And I just said, you know, I'm not a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again Jew. Yeah, that's I'm still, very confusing for them. Yeah, I am still Jewish. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that there aren't, that doesn't mean that the, it does I don't believe in replacement theology. I believe in fulfillment theology. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Um, and I also believe in the Jewish concept of the very Jewish concept of resurrection at the end times, mm-hmm. judgment and resurrection at the end times, and a new heaven mm-hmm. and a new earth that God is going to create. I love the prophets. It, and the interesting thing is that it wasn't till I began to be involved um, in, in church that I started reading more of the prophets and the Psalms uh, I, I didn't pay that much. I had a really good Jewish education, but I didn't pay that much attention to the extra writings. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I've come to love Jeremiah and the Psalms of David. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, we, and when I read the very first time I read the New Testament, which was actually not until a couple of years after my near death experience, I read that entire New Testament and I said, how can anyone even understand this book if they're not Jewish? It makes no sense. It's so (laughs) Jewish. Yeah. Such a Jewish book. Right. Yeah. That's very much so the intersection of like Jewish identity, which I'm not Jewish, but Damien is, he can testify to this, the the intersection of being a Jewish person and being like having a relationship with Jesus is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is the kind of thing that is, is fairly new, like in a historical sense, obviously it's not new, because like the first generation disciples of Jesus were all Jews, um, yes. you know, for a long time. Yes. But that that sort of way of following, or that uh, permission to have that identity went away 
um, so quickly and is only now coming back. It's only now coming back to where a Jewish person can say like, yeah, I'm a Jew and I, for example, would keep the Sabbath or something, but still follow Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. have, have you made some connections with like other people like Messianic Jews or like Messianic Jewish synagogues? Have you had any experiences, positive, negative, um, within that broader community of Jewish people who uh, follow Jesus? Not really you guys, I guess. Um, I did attend a messianic church synagogue once and I didn't like it mm. because it was new agey. Oh. It didn't strike me as being either Jewish or Christian. It striked me as being new agey. Yeah. And some with, will some will find some incredible irony in that that we're talking about new near death experiences and <laughs> messianic <laughs> synagogues and new age. I love it. Yeah. Sorry. Just no, I think Go that's ahead. funny too. But I just, I mean, I just, it was this mishmash of trying to pull things together and figure out how to make it mesh when it didn't really mesh. And then you've got other people doing, doing Sufi dancing in the aisles. And I, I was like, this is not for me. Right. Um, I like the, if you've been, and I assume you guys go to, you have a service. I like the, the ritual of, I like the Jewish ritual. I like the order of the Jewish service, but I also like the lessons I get at the evangelical church where right. I go. Mm -hmm. I like both. I get, and oftentimes it's really funny. The rabbi will do a sermon and then the pastor at my church will do the same kind of sermon that they're, they're in this weird synchronicity. But I, I learn from both and I have in meeting Jesus I learned to appreciate my Jewish roots far more. I learned that there was far more to my Jewish roots than just what my father told me, which was basically, this is all a bunch of baloney. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned there was, there is, and I have learned there is far more to the New Testament than this is all made up fantasy, which is also what I was raised with. Mm -hmm. This is all God stuff. This is all Jewish stuff. And I, I think it was Maimonides who said something like, don't, don't, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase him. He said something like, we as Jews do not believe Jesus is our Messiah. But even so, we should pray for the Christians because they are spreading our Torah to the ends of the earth. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I happen yeah. to think my mom, I've read the guide to the perplexed. I happen to think Maimonides was a great man. Mm -hmm. So, and I truly believe that God keeps his promises, which is why I don't believe in replacement theology. Yeah. God made promises. He made a covenant with the Jewish people. He's not going to just cast us aside. I have never, that, that actually never occurred to me. If God can be there for me, who I may have, I did believe in God, knew nothing about Jesus. Um, and he was there for me. Hmm. He was there for me when I died. He was comforting me. He was loving me. He was everything to me. So I think God, if God makes a promise, he keeps it. Yeah. He, he does. Yeah. If, re if replacement theology is, is correct, the whole world is in a very, very, very big, bad bit of trouble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's always the thing. If God can change one thing, he could change everything, right? And that's yes. a pretty fundamental thing to change is to say, I used to like you Jews, but I don't anymore. So now the you know, these people 
but yeah. um, I, 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 we need three hours for this because we haven't even gotten into like the, some of the hospice stuff, but I, I do want to ask one thing that I'm, I'm not confused by it. I'm just, I'm curious about it. Okay. And that is in some of the other podcasts and you didn't go too far into it this time in the description of Yeshua and the description of Jesus, the way that you saw him. Um, you, I've, you, you've, well, can you do a, give us a quick description of the Yeshua, of the Jesus you saw? Yeah, I can. He's beautiful, but he's not perfect. And in his imperfection, he was perfect. He had, you know, his hair was wavy, brown hair, chestnut brown hair down to about here with a few lighter streaks. He had kind of a low brow. My husband does too. Um, not super bushy eyebrows, but, you know, thick eyebrows. He had a beard and a mustache, not not a real long one. It was just scruff. Um, he had high cheekbones, wide set eyes. Uh, he was, I, let's, let's say with 5'10", 160 pounds, <laughs> he had beautiful hands, long fingers. I did not see his wrists. His, his robe covered them. Beautiful feet. And he had long toes, and I have long toes, so I noticed that. I didn't see his ankles. His uh, robe covered that. But one of the things I didn't talk about until I talked to John Burke, because I was terrified to tell anybody this, was that uh, he has blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And m most of the Jewish people, although my husband has hazel eyes, my kids have hazel eyes, my father has green eyes, most of my the Jewish people I know eyes. have dark eyes. Yeah. He had really beautiful blue eyes. And the most interesting thing that I loved about him, that I truly loved about looking at his face, was his nose. He had a long, thin nose, and it was crooked. It looked like somebody had punched him in the nose, and it was broken at the very top. There wasn't room. He wasn't bruised or anything, but it just his nose was crooked. It just looked mm. like someone had punched him in the nose. And I thought at that time, oh, I wonder if one of his – this is what I thought, and I didn't even know he had brothers. And I'm like – one of his brothers punched him in the nose and broke his nose. But then I did learn later, whether it has anything to do with it or not, because he did not tell me that, you know, his nose had been broken uh, before the crucifixion that he had been beaten. And I, I mm -hmm. didn't know that at the time because I didn't know anything about what had happened before right, the crucifixion. Right, right. right. So, you know, he, his smile is glorious. You can't look away from his smile. His smile is a smile for the entire world. And, you know, people have asked me uh, about, I suppose if Jesus was mad at you, I suppose he could show that somehow. I don't know. I mean, he is, in my experience, he was absolute, the embodiment of love and comfort. Yeah. But he was pretty firm, I mean, when he told me I had, I didn't die and I had yeah. to go back, he wasn't going to mess around with me. He wasn't going to put well, up with any of my stuff. Given so. the context of your experience, if if you ever see Jesus riding in on a horse and he's got a sword in his hand, it's probably not going to go well from there. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's, yes. He, I wouldn't, I was a teenager and I was still a teenager when I died. So I'm going to yeah. argue and believe me, right. I did not want to leave God. Yeah. Now I'm not 
one of those people who kept thinking, oh, I've got to get back there. I've got to get back there. I love, if anything, I loved this life more than I ever had. Mm. I'd had a real hard time prior to my death. And uh, I mean, immediately afterwards, it's he didn't wag his finger and say, quit doing drugs, nothing like that. Quit hanging out mm. with the kids you're hanging out with. He didn't do that. He didn't say that to me. Mm. But immediately after waking up, and laying in the hospital, no more drugs, no more cigarettes, broke up with all my friends, broke up with my boyfriend, all done. I was done with all of that. Um, my relationship with my parents had been had always been bad. It didn't improve, but it didn't matter. This no longer mattered to me. What mattered to me was getting finishing up with high school early and getting myself to Israel. And that was twofold. I knew my parents would be very supportive of that because I'm Jewish. I was 17. And I was going there because I wanted, I, I had this notion of where Jesus had been, even though I had not read the New Testament. And I was going there no matter what. And I was going mm-hmm. to walk where he had walked. Mm-hmm. And I was going to sit in the places where he had sat. Uh, I just, I knew I was going to go. And I did live for Israel. I did live in Israel for a year. And I, I loved it. And um, I almost didn't come back. I probably would have stayed if not for a few reasons. Number one, I really missed Mexican food and they, there's no Mexican food in Israel at the time. Really missed Mexican food. Um, number two, I still had this idea that I was going to marry this man who I had met when I was 14. I knew if I stayed in Israel, that wasn't going to happen. And number three, I had this feeling that if I didn't go back, I wasn't going back. That was it. That was going to be it. And I had some guilt about abandoning my family here. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I did come back, but I have been back to Israel and it's every bit as amazing as it was Absolutely. back then. Absolutely. It is. Mm-hmm. So your, uh, your own near death experience, um, wasn't your only sort of encounter or brush, uh, up against the other side or the world of truth or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, as I was reading your book, which I loved by the way, um, one foot in heaven journey of a hospice nurse, um, you talk about some kind of spooky things happening um, when other people die. Um, so just regular death experiences. But when you're in the room with them, um, you know, you, you get a sense that there's a presence there or they see things and they can mm-hmm. talk about them to you. And, and one, uh, one story that I thought was just, just completely blew my mind was when you poked someone with a hypodermic needle and their soul flew out of their body through the hole and you could like feel it or sense it. Can you tell us about that? Those kinds of experiences? Um, yeah, that was... It was terrifying. That was terrifying. That was it's a good, Reading good it, description. Reading it, I can't even imagine being there. That was a terrifying experience. She, as I say in the book, she was a dump. And that means the family didn't want to... Even the family, we called the family. They didn't want anything to do with her. She didn't have a physician. She'd had a stroke and uh, the other units were full. She was put in our cardiac care unit just to die. And um, since I was one of the younger nurses, I got her. Nobody else wanted to take care of her. She should not have been able to do this because of her stroke, but she did. She was she was screaming and pointing and running around the room fighting with something. And I would 
wrestle her back into bed and she'd stay there for maybe 10 minutes and then it would start all over again. And she kept looking at something in the corner and she was terrified of whatever was in the corner. And so I was terrified of whatever was in the corner because since I have died, I don't necessarily assume there's not something in the corner. Right. I just, she, people who are dying, see things I can't always see. So I'm going to assume she was seeing something. And I had no clue about anything that had transpired in her life. I had her name and her age. That was it. Mm. And her diagnosis. As a hospice nurse, I had a lot of medications to help people who were experiencing end-stage agitation or death terror. In this particular case, I had no medications to help her. Mm. So I finally um, begged the charge nurse for what we call standing orders, which I don't think hospitals have standing orders anymore, where at least I could give her something. I, I, I think I get, got an order for a muscle relaxant. So I could give her an injection in her thigh of a muscle relaxant that would maybe help her sleep, help her stay in bed mm. because I was exhausted. She was exhausted and well, I was more exhausted than she was. So I drew up that hypodermic needle. I drew up that medication and I marched into the room and I said, you know, I said her name and I, I said, I'm going to give you this shot and this is going to help you sleep. This will make you feel better. I stuck that needle into her thigh and I didn't even have time to inject the medication. I stuck that needle into her thigh and there was this explosion of almost wind, you know, wind Mm. right out of that pinhole that just blew my scrubs back, blew against me. And she (laughs) laid just fell back on the bed dead and I started screaming. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. was shrieking my head off because I had never experienced anything like that. I had had patients die before, never like this. And Mm -hmm. I thought I killed her. I didn't know whatever happened was not a positive experience for any of us Mm, (laughs) for her or for me. Right. And it really scared me. Um, my the charge nurse came in and clapped her hand over my mouth and said, you're scaring the other patients. She dragged me down to the emergency room. The emergency room doctor gave me a paper bag because I was hyperventilating. And he said, and I told him what happened. And he said, well, her soul was stuck in her body. And maybe when you, you stuck her with that needle, you let her out. And I thought about it. And I thought, yeah, I I think that's what happened. I think I, I stuck her with a needle and I let her out. Mm. Um, we've had patients in hospice. We have oftentimes have patients who are really having a hard time dying because they don't want to leave their loved ones. They're worried about their wife. They're worried about their kids. It's, it's not easy to die. Mm. And sometimes we turn them over to rub their back, put, you know, put lotion on their back. They die. Mm. Um, it's just sometimes it's just one little thing that helps mm-hmm. them leave their body. Mm-hmm. What happened to this woman? I can't say. I have no idea. I pray nothing bad happened to her. I don't. I honestly don't know. It was just a really terrifying experience because most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, the deaths I have, um, the people I've worked with who have been dying, their deaths have been peaceful. Mm. And, uh, you know, occasionally people do struggle and people tell you lots of things at the end if they're conscious so you know it's 
always interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're yeah. we're running out of time. I thank you for being here, but we're, there's still a couple more things. First off, I just wonder. I think about like, you know, why why did God give you this this opportunity, this privilege? And, but then I look at what you did as a hospice nurse, and <laughs> that's a very special calling. That's incredibly difficult work. Um, in the book, you make you make it a, a, an an art form. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see the life you've lived doing that. But I mean, do you ever consider? Probably you have that that God gave you that experience at sixteen with Heather, so that you would be able to be the person you were to all the people you've served and cared for from that point forward. Probably. I never thought of becoming a nurse. I I didn't even think when I was 16, I didn't even think I'd live to be 30. But um, I yes, he guided me to hospice nursing. It was not what I expected to do. Nursing was unexpected. I wanted and once I did get into nursing, I wanted to be a midwife. I ended midwifing people out the other side. Right. It's just yes. 180. <laughs> but being Having had the experience I had, death didn't scare me. And I was able to work with people and be honest with them mm -hmm. about what was happening to them. And and because of that honesty and that openness, they were able to be honest with me in the yeah. end. And as I said, it's not easy to be born. It's not easy to die. And if I can help these patients die with peace and dignity... That's what I'm going to do. It was the most. It was the most rewarding thing I can imagine ever imagine mm -hmm. doing, mm -hmm. was yeah. being blessed to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. It's truly a blessing. I know you affected a lot of families positively. Thank yeah. you. I hope so. And told some hilarious stories, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, I, as you can see from the book, I'm not perfect, and I can't handle everything, and I can be pretty squeamish. Oh yeah, yeah. I had to put it down. Yeah. I had to put it down for Mister X and Mister Y. For I, I had to go walk around my house a little bit. That was a that was a little much. Just even uh, trying yeah. to imagine that. I can't imagine uh, <laughs> living through that. Yeah. Not the career. Yeah. Not the career for old Jacob here. Um, I'm glad I get to sit at a desk and 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 talk into a microphone. No bodily fluids anywhere. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, toward the end of uh, our podcast, I like to ask a few questions. Uh, I call it the rapid fire rounds. And you have to answer off the top of your head. We don't give these to anyone in advance. Um, okay. So you, you graduated from the University of Iowa, right? Yes. So I didn't know this before, but the most iconic apple, the Red Delicious Apple, was developed in Iowa. Did that become your favorite apple there? Or do you have a different favorite apple? I like Fuji's. You like Fuji apples. There you go. <laughs> Fuji it is. I do. Yeah. yeah. Next question. If you could have afternoon tea with any sovereign of Britain, from Egbert to Elizabeth II, which one do you pick? Anne Boleyn. Anne. Oh, there we go. And yeah. last question. Um, I've read a lot of horror stories about how difficult it is to be a nurse right now. Do you have any words of encouragement for the nurses out there who are just struggling um, it's never been an easy job, but it, it seems like it's been really difficult lately from what I've been reading. Uh, I honestly think it's going to get better. Mm. I think um, I would be, it would be really hard for me to, if I was working right now, 
but I think it's going to get better. Mm. Um, I have hope that I have hope in my, I have hope in the people who work in my career that they are, they have a lot of stick to itiveness. Mm. They're really stubborn people. They'll, they'll make it through. Good. I hope you're right. I do too. <laughs> All right. Well, we're about out of time. I know you're an aspiring novelist. Um, is Do you have like a Twitter or something that people can subscribe to so they know when that comes out? Or I don't. I tend to stay off of social media. Okay. Um, I am working on another. I'm actually working on uh, the story, just my just the near death near death experience, no hospice nursing. Okay. So although I might put some of that in there towards the end. Okay. So. That will, I'll keep in touch with you and I'll let you know when that comes out. Okay. Well, thanks. Excellent. Well, Thank and you. also I want you to know, not all Messianic synagogues are weird, first of all. Yeah. You're always <laughs> welcome to come to ours. We're not weird. Um, secondly, we are, uh, I'm sorry to hear about your father. And Thank we you. will be. we will be thinking of you and of him and for some miraculous awareness to come at this final stage of his life regarding what you have what you have lived through and shared and that God will continue. I don't don't think there would be anything sweeter for you possibly than to finally have that conversation with your dad. So it's in God's hands, but we'll be praying for something miraculous. Thank you. He is in God's hands. And God's giving yeah. him a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Awesome. Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story yet again and to talk with us uh, from, uh, well, have you done other pod, have you done any podcasts with other Jews yet or is it all just, has it been church people? Um, no, no other Jews. You guys are the first Jews. And I, I, I mean, talking to Jewish people would be my first choice, even though I might be ridiculed. I don't care. Jewish yeah. people are I mean, I'm Jewish. <laughs> right. I'm Jewish. Right, we keep right. kosher in our home. Mm, we do Shabbat. Right. So, yeah, yep. love to talk to Jewish people. Another podcast would be wonderful to talk about the Ain Self and the mystical interpretations and how Jews would struggle with the description of God as a human form and how, you know, all the things that you talked about, there's so many things, but there's so much content in what you said that this is what we had time for. So maybe we can do it again. I would love to. All right. Take care. Okay. Blessings. Thank you. Bye. Torah Club is the world's fastest growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. Well, safe to say, as expected, that did not disappoint. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of considerations in there. I was not kidding. It probably could have turned that into a three hour podcast. What would you, what'd you take away here? What was, what were some highlights? Yeah, man, there was a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, hearing her talk about seeing her as a baby with Jesus next to her and th the feeling of knowing him already uh, mm -hmm. reminded me of the, the first part of the gospel of John, where it says the delight that shines, like illuminates everybody that comes into the world. 
Like he's, yeah. he's always there. Like he is always there with us, even if we don't, wouldn't recognize him or don't know about him. He is, you know, in some way there with us. We, we t- talked about it a little bit. We didn't dig it in, dig into it about the, the, this, it's a, it's an esoteric interpretation of God as light. You know, mm. it's, it's, that word simsum, which is a contraction of God's light, removing himself from the space so that then through his word, he could create the world. It's all just remarkably cool stuff. But I I was just, I couldn't get those thoughts out of my mind as she's describing Hashem as this infinite light. And then the way she described it was as a robe, sort of the 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 human characteristics of God. I wanted to dig into that a little bit further because it's, you know, it's not. I, I don't want to say contrary, but like we don't ever think of God in Judaism in that way. You know, as sitting on his lap and stuff. That that was her experience, and so I'm certainly not discounting it. But saying lifting the robe reminded me of of this contraction of his light, which I thought yeah. was. Yeah, you know what I thought, Jacob. What? My goodness, there's so much we don't know about yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and those, um, you know, those those are like deep, kabbalistic ideas, almost like yeah. the the idea that you know it's almost it's it's sort of almost heretical sounding to say that God would contract. I mean, how could first of all, how could something that's infinite contract? But then, you know, the the other side of that coin is, if God is infinite, how can anything else exist except for God? And that's right. the that's the tension that you find in these mystical texts, um, and boy, what an experience to have a, a sensory like contact with that idea not just as not just as words on a page or trying to imagine it, but but to to live through it. Um, wow. Yeah, because well, m- mystical mystical interpretations of anything tend to be very very frowned on. So well, by by a lot of the the people that uh, we we tend to interact with, you know, if yeah. it's if it's a mystical thing, it's a bad thing. Everyone thinks of like Kabbalah and they think of Madonna and and red bracelets. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was a very different sort of. How, what word could you use to describe a near death experience outside of mystical? It's mysterious. It's unbelievable. It's ineffable. As we saw in in Heidi's attempt to describe things repeatedly, she said, "I there are no words mm. ineffable by definition." Yeah, well, and you so. get the idea that there's some there's stuff that we're not allowed to know. I mean, you we sort of brush up against these big truths in the scripture or in a mystical experience like that, but we come back from it like she did, feeling like, "Oh, for a second, I knew why all this was happening. I knew the purpose and the uh, yeah. meaning of life." And then it was just gone. Like it just gets yeah. snapped. Like God snatches it out of your brain. He's not allowed to have that yet. But to yeah. know that it's there, I think, is comforting. Seeing through a glass dimly hmm. came to my mind as she was describing. I, you know, I didn't need to know anything when I was there. It was just I was, I was in the know. Um, but just, just the mysteries of what awaits us. Hmm. from this world to the next it's exciting yeah so i enjoyed it i hope uh as always good to spend time with you and with our audience we appreciate you being here 
and supporting the Messiah podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, shalom. Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea